I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with a conversation about building an absolutely exceptional design brand. Christopher Peacock is a truly exceptional creative with a rich history in creating some of the most extraordinary wood cabinetry in the industry today. There's a difference between crafting a product and building a brand. Peacock molded his eponymous brand in the U.S. from humble beginnings in the U.K. and a keen understanding for what he wanted. And he's going to share that story and insight with you right here. Christopher launched his firm in 1992. Christopher Peacock Cabinetry was built on the premise that wooden cabinetry should be beautiful and enduring. But when Peacock put his name on it, there was a greater sense of purpose. That is what I find so interesting here. This is the piece that is missing from much of what we see and hear these days in the trades and in the media surrounding design and architecture. For many years now, the idea of luxury has been inextricably tied to big, expensive, and and for lack of a better word, extra. I don't think good design has to be big, expensive, or extra. I think good, no. Great design is about the nature of the work and the manner in which the work is tied to the individual for whom it's created. Look at art. A painting can sell for millions of dollars. But at the end of the day, what is it, really? A few dollars worth of canvas and paint. But the work speaks. Fashion, same thing. A few dollars of fabric crafted into something extraordinary. It's the art that goes into the craftsmanship. That's what makes design so special. And that's why Christopher's story is so special as well. And I'm so pleased to share it with you. This is the 10th year of Convo by Design. For the past 10 years, I've been working with the biggest and brightest names in design and architecture. I have also spent a significant amount of time consulting brands and producing branded content for them. Beginning this year, we are offering this service to design and architecture firms of all sizes, from the single creative to multinational design firms and brands alike. If you are in need of a production company to produce social media content, develop your company podcast, write your blog posts, produce trade-focused CEUs, and create in-showroom programming, or you need help leveling up your firm, email me, convobydesign at outlook.com. Dot com or message me on Instagram at Convo by Design with an X. Christopher and I first met at Design Chicago a few years ago. We hit it off then, and this chat is an extension of that first conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. We'll get right to it after this. I am so incredibly proud of my partnership with Thermosol. They have been presenting partners of Convo by Design for three years now, and there is a certain amount of pride that comes with saying that the show is presented by the company that is the best in the world at what they do. Thermosol engineers the most exceptional smart shower products and steam shower systems worldwide for a few reasons. They were the first company to design and patent the technology here in the U.S. dating back to 1958. Thermosol a U.S.-based manufacturer in Round Rock, Texas, employs an engineering team that designs, tests, and continually refines the product. Their quality control team tests every single steam generator before it departs the factory. Who else does that? Nobody. I have the pleasure of working with some world-class designers and architects who tell me, and, and you know this, that the idea of luxury has changed, especially when clients want a spa-like bathroom. Steam is mandatory or it's just not considered a luxury. And if you want to add steam, you have one true option, Thermosol. Mitch Altman, the third generation CEO of this family-owned company of 65 years, continues to innovate the bathroom and shower space through technological marvels, such as intelligent showering systems, sound therapy, aromatherapy, technical interfaces, and so much more. And now Thermosol, the industry leader in steam bath equipment and technology since 1958, is enhancing its already stellar family of products with new indoor and outdoor luxury saunas. Available in three design configurations, outdoor barrel, outdoor canopy barrel, and indoor, each sauna is handcrafted from clear western red cedar or Nordic spruce, inspired by the brilliance of northern European sauna technology and design. 
Thermosol's latest collections offer luxurious features, exceptional design. A bathroom isn't luxury without steam. There's only one option if you want the finest experience, and it's Thermosol. Check it out at thermosol.com and at thermosol on the socials. It is so great to see you again. Last time you and I spoke was at Design Chicago at the Mart. Yep. I, I loved our chat. Um, you know what's really interesting, Christopher? It was it was only a year ago, but it so much has changed in a year. Have you yeah. in all in all of your years, you started the business in 1992 and all of your years doing this, have you ever experienced a single year where so much has changed following two to three years where so much has changed? No, never. No, it's unprecedented. Um and there's really no way to know what to do with it other than sort of hang on to the reins and just be in the moment, you know. Um because of that, I've never, I've never known it be more intense in a good way, um, more intense in a difficult way, um, with you know just pressure of getting things done in what is still kind of very much post-COVID world for us. Um, you know, I think the effects of that, whilst all of a sudden it seemed like the masks were coming off and everybody was vaccinated and we were all trying to get back to normal that the hangover is is huge um, from a business standpoint. Um, so, you know, the result of that is an incredibly, uh, an incredibly interesting, challenging uh, year. And it's probably been the highest of highs and the toughest time ever in business for me. Is that right? Well, I want to, I want to drill down on that a little bit because I think it's really, in, it's, it's really interesting to me because I enjoyed our first conversation. It wasn't nearly long enough. We didn't really get to sure. dig into the business and the, and the story behind your starting the company. But here's what's, and maybe what we could do here, I would love to sort of go backwards mm -hmm. because a year ago, what we were talking about, and it's very interesting now, but you were talking about being at the Mart, right? And talking about the value of a showroom, mm. right? And you said something that was very interesting to me. You were sort of talking about how, people were designers, the trade in particular, they were kind of self-filtering the experience and the choices of, oh, I'm going to go to this. Oh, I'm going to go to that. I'm going to go to this party. I'm going to go to that event. I'm going to go to this lunch and learn. I'm gonna... That all changed mm -hmm. along with everything else. How, how has the evolution of that self-filtering on behalf, on, on the part of the design community changed the manner in which you operate your company? Mm. Uh, it's a really good question. Um, well, you know, obviously we were forced to become efficient, right? Whether, whether it was, and, and, and you're right. I mean, pre-COVID, there was, you know, there was a ton of events and a ton of networking and all of that kind of stuff was great and wonderful. Um, and I think what we all did is we all reassessed, right? So we all had to decide, well, what's the benefit of this? And, and, and where do we benefit from this? And if we have to work, in these under these difficult circumstances at the time, how do we absolutely kind of streamline and maximize the time that we do have to, uh, to get these things done? And so that that was a permanent shift. That was not a temporary shift. That was that became a permanent shift because we all figured out, I think, that we can actually work a whole lot smarter and more efficiently um, and get a lot more done. And so I think it affects the business at many levels. It affects it. Um, sort of at the macro level where, um, you know, the, just in terms of internally how we've, we've changed the, the way we run our business now um, and um, the systems that we use. And, and, and we, we, we're very so, sort of self-critical now about is it worth it before we do it? You know, and, and I think, you know, we certainly because now, because we have so much work, um, we have to be really, really sort of curated in the work that we chase and the work that we go after. Um, and, and I think that's just a, a function of just having the choice, which we didn't necessarily, we, we've, you know, thankfully we've been a busy company for many years, but, but I think we've got even more choice now as to who we choose to work with. And, and, and I also think it's a maturity thing in business for us is that the older the company is, the, the, the longer we're in the game, the, the, the more you understand your self value as a company. And I think when you understand your, 
you, you, your value and what you bring to the game, you start to sort of essentially self-select who you want to work with and how you want to work and what events you want to go to um, and how much effort you want to put into a particular initiative. You know, um, so it's it all of that kind of forced us all to look inward first, I think. And the result of that is that we're 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 a, a much better company today because of that. Well, I, I think what's interesting, too, is we're we're at this moment in time, you know, traditionally the design community architects a little operate very differently than designers do. Um, but what's really interesting is. I'm, I'm trying to find the, the best way to say this, but, you know, life has gotten far more complicated. Um, operating a business is more complicated. There are more requirements. There's more, um, there's more paperwork. There's more tax considerations. You, there's social media. You need people. It, it used to be, and I say it used to be, I mean, there was an opportunity to, to do business a lot easier prior to all of the reselects and supply chain and trying to, to find mm -hmm. materials. So now supply chain has opened up a little bit and um, we're on another challenging journey, this, this precipice that, that we're on right now where we're looking at, is there gonna be a recession? Mm -hmm. If there is a recession, are we already in a recession? Mm -hmm. um, you know, mm -hmm. some suggest that the the low to mid end of the business has already entered recession and been there for for a couple of months now. That's what I hear from my designer friends. The the higher end, the luxury side, you know, whether they enter, they're traditionally getting what they want anyway. You know, yeah. it, this doesn't really affect them. Yeah, it's, um, um, th I mean that's that's a conversation we have every day. I, in fact. Just yesterday, I had, I had a conversation with a very, a very smart guy who's in the finance world, um, but also sort of somewhat in, in, in involved with design business and design companies. And we were talking about how we, we are yet to feel the effects of, of a slowdown. Um, but I think we're in rarefied air. And it's because, you know, the people that we tend to have as clients and that we work with and interact with um, are, 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 less affected there for everybody's affected but that it doesn't affect their decision making necessarily um whereas i think you're absolutely right the low to mid end of the market 100 uh, percent i believe we are in a recession and um i think that uh, it's going to be bumpy for a while for them and i think we ultimately will see the slowdown you know back in 2008 uh and that whole sort of that really challenging difficult period we were the last companies to, the high-end companies were the last to feel it and the first to come back from it but we all felt it um but i think it's you know we are fortunate if if you're in this end of the market where you're you're the the effect of it is is minimalized i think what's fascinating too is you know like i mentioned you started your company 30 years ago congratulations by Thank the you. way yeah uh, um, it was like 20. No, it feels like 40. <laughs> <laughs> it probably felt like five until the last three, which felt like a hundred. Yeah. Easy math. Yeah. Um, what's really interesting too is post pandemic. And I think it's safe to call it post pandemic at this point, but what's really interesting to me is the manner in which, um, design has really changed, you know, being from Southern California, I started seeing design friends building out second kitchens, um, was was becoming semi-regular on, on the luxury side, be it a kosher kitchen where you mm -hmm. have a big space and two appliances of everything. Yep. Or, you know, uh, on the on the Asian design side where you have a dirty kitchen, a working kitchen where, yep. you know, greasy and odors, but it's still a second kitchen nonetheless. But now you're starting to see this, this development of a second kitchen with a scullery or, or a, or mm -hmm. a, you know, it's just amazing what's yeah. happening in the space. How, how do you stay on top? And I know that you have constant and close communications with your, with the design community, but as someone who's also manufacturing mm -hmm. in the U S how do you stay on top of the massive and so rapidly uh, changing environment? Um, well, I, I, I think that we, if, if I'm honest, I think we are often reactionary rather than proactive. 
um, you know, just being being active in the community and being and talking to people and and sort of trying to keep your finger on the pulse, really. And 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 that's just purely by this, right? By having conversation, sort of peer to peer conversations. Um, and spending as much time as you can just understanding what everybody else is up to. Um, I, I don't think we uh, are necessarily always good at predicting the future, but we, we I, I, again, I think what happens is it, it sort of comes from the top down. So high-end design, you know, couture design, the, the best architects, the best interior designers are the influencers, but often they are being influenced by their clients and their clients are worldly, they're global travelers and they're influenced by the things that they see and they, they bring that information back to their design team who then react to it, right? So, so we're part of that at the very high end. Um, and then once we, we react to it, then it becomes part of what we're talking about. And so it kind of bleeds on down into the rest of the system. I mean, there are... Uh, you know, there are things that I, I can say that we did 20 years ago that I can go to Home Depot now and I can see them. Um, and I can't, I'm not claiming that we, you know, we did all of that stuff, but we did do some of it for sure. And and I think it starts at the high end and it, and it ultimately permeates down through the rest of the design industry. Um, so, but how do we do it? It's really by, by just being out there and networking and listening. And I, I think really our clients guide us um, I think it's up to us to recognize whether their idea is a good or a bad one and, um, you know, guide them through that process and, and sort of tease out whether it's going to work or not. That's where, that's why we do what we do. It's why we're good at what we do and why professionals exist. Um, but I think it's, it's collaborative. I, so I, I can't say that it's all us. I think it's just collaborative. And understanding that, and I, I, I kind of want to circle back on a, on a previous idea that because the community, the design community in particular, is, is getting so college judicious with how they spend their time, has that made things more challenging for you? And I, and I kind of want to set the question up this way. Every time there is a major blip in history, you know, for us in the, in the industry, right, 2008, 2009, Yep. huge. It was different, but it was huge. Mm-hmm. And what happened was there was this huge influx of creatives into the business. You look back to, um, you know, 9-11, yeah. same thing. There was a huge <laughs> influx. As you were saying that, I was going to say that was the other one for me. I mean, you know, having been in business for 30 years, I mean, I started the company in a recession. It was just me. It was 1992. And there was nothing going on, which actually, in hindsight, was the best thing I could do because I was able to capture the, the upswing of business and, and grow my business with it. But I've seen this a few times now. Yeah. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. No, no, it's, it's important because what I wanted to find out from you is like, how do you engage? So do you, do you have an internal design team that, that then reaches out and, and um integrates with the the designers that are specifiers how do you, how do you change the internal communications of the business products is side is one thing manufacturing the business side is one thing the influencer side the creative side the designer side and architects and really integrating with them to find out what they're working on and how th- that will change your business how do you stay on top of that well um so the way that we're structured is basically we have um, a corporate office and we have a showroom network and then we have a manufacturing. Um, but essentially our showroom network is like sort of having 10, 10 little businesses in different parts of the country. And each of those showrooms is led by a design team with typically one or two um, you know, lead designers, head designers who are incredibly experienced and um have all been with me for a very long time. Um, and so we, in, internally, we have an understanding and, and they've embraced essentially the, the, the creativity that came from me originally. Um, and, and I still do, I'm, I'm still very creative. I'm still trying to bring new things to market and, you know, kind of uh, play with my own ideas, if you like. But but it really takes the, the, the rest of the design team to help me bring that 
to market, if you like. Um, and they're just so experienced and they're so good at what they do, better than me in many cases, I think. Um, and I think that they, um, like me, um, have built these long-standing relationships with the de design community in their part of the world. And so they continue that sort of interactive uh, approach and collaborative approach, working with their their regular customers, essentially. You know, we've got we've got very big interior design firms that just come to us constantly and use us. And I think that's because what we provide those design firms is um, a sounding board for their ideas. We're able to take their ideas and kind of make them real, and and also we're not afraid to tell them when they're they're wrong. You know. <laughs> um, and I think they appreciate that. And so we, we kind of solve a big headache um, in, in that sense. Um, and then internally, we're all communicating all the time. I mean, you know, whether it's over Zoom, whether it's over email, and, and, and we have our own meetings, um, we're all communicating and sharing ideas constantly as well. So, so it's really all of that um, is how we, 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 we stay in our position in the market. I kind of wanted to to go backwards a little bit a little bit further. You know, past Terence Conran's uh, retail store in in London. Yes. How'd you get there? And from there, I know physically how you got here, but I'm more interested in in the journey. This this bespoke handcrafted cabinetry. Mm -hmm. Why why that? Why design and architecture? Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, I didn't grow up wanting to be in this business or wanting to be a designer. Um, I was naturally, first of all, let's start at the very beginning. I'm an only child, right? So an only child has a lot of time in their bedroom where they've got nothing to do apart from listen to music uh, or draw or, you know, make a model airplane or whatever it might be, right? So once once all the, the kids on the street were all pulled back into their homes for the evening, unless you were going to sit with your parents watching TV, you were basically up in your room. And, you know, as they say, um, um, you know, boredom is, is really the mother of invention. And, and, it, and it does that. So I was always creative and I felt always very comfortable drawing things or making things. So that was just that. Um, I'm also very much the product of, of two parents who, in hindsight, I realize now, you know, the older you get, the more you realize why you are who you are. Um, my father's side, my father and his entire family were um, a family of builders, basically, um, back in England, you know, back from the, the early 1900s, right the way through, sort of a legacy business where they would all work uh, in, in the construction industry in London. And and as a young kid, from a very young kid, on Saturdays, I would very often be dragged up to London with my dad, who had to, he was kind of a, a, a director of this building company, but he felt obliged to go every Saturday to go and see what was going on in his, these construction sites. So I would go with him. So I was, from a young age, I remember the sort of the smell and the, the sounds of construction sites. And so it was always familiar carpentry was always familiar and i'm not a carpenter i mean i know a bit about carpentry but i'm not a carpenter um but um i think what i got out of that was is that everything felt like it was achievable like you could you could build something it was practical you could see something and you could make it and you could build it and so that that sort of became part of my character i guess and then on my mother's side she was actually a, an executive for a very um one well one of the big four television companies in the uk she ran a whole division uh, making documentary um films so um so i was exposed to that side of creativity as well and she was very businesslike and, and a very smart lady and so um i i fell into what i'm doing now purely as a side job I was actually, I, I, I'm a musician. I like to play drums. Uh, I still do that. Um, and that's an old story that people have heard before about me, but that's literally how I got into it. I was, it was a side job while I was trying to make money playing drums, which I wasn't doing. Um, and I started driving this delivery truck for a, a, a friend's kitchen cabinet company. And 
all of a sudden I was literally immersed in this world where I see guys who are drawing and designing and creating things in the front office. And then I would walk 30 feet into the back, into the warehouse where they were making cabinetry. And it just all felt very normal to me. I, I It stitched together the creative um part which is you know if i find that if i'm trying to get an idea across to somebody the first thing i want to do is to reach for a felt tip pen and tracing paper and draw it because that's kind of like my weapon of choice i know i can convey my idea if i can just grab a pen and draw it um and it, it's that with this sort of ability to see well if i can draw it i know i can make that because i just drew it and i understand the connection of that um that got me into it and i and i quickly realized that i i could do this and i enjoyed doing this because it kind of touched the these different areas of the brain for me um and i just got into it and i enjoyed i enjoyed the process of doing it but i enjoyed the process of delivering the message to somebody and and still do you know so it's like wow that's great you know it's 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 listen it's it's a it's an ego boost right if you can come up with an idea and you can deliver it and somebody likes it and they want to buy it from you how cool is that it's amazing but it's also as i as i listen to you explain this there's a couple of things i there i've got so many things swirling around here first of all what an what an unfair advantage for you to have um it's and i and i i don't mean that in I mean it as as genuinely as I'm saying it. The ability to physically draw something, um, there is no that is a language unto itself. There is no uh, there is no better way to communicate to somebody to, than to draw them a picture. Most yeah. people cannot do that. And nowadays, you know, we're dealing with a new generation of designers, architects, product designers, product manufacturers, yeah. creatives who don't spend any time in their room doodling or drawing because they have iPads and iPhones and, and computers and CAD is a wonderful invention. But I also feel like the ability to, to digitally master something, uh, you know, on a, on a computer in some way, shape or form kind of, it's great. It's important. It gets down to millimeters and, and it's, but it takes away some of the art. Oh, wait, listen, it takes away more than the art in my, so you're absolutely right. It does take away the art. Um, particularly if you're trying to deliver a message to somebody, you know, um, a digital image is too perfect and it, there's no character involved in that. And, and, you know, we're designing character here. We're not just designing someone's room or someone's wooden box or whatever. We're designing the character of a space and freeform design um, captures that in a subliminal way that you cannot do with a CAD program or anything else. And the other thing is, is that you tend to, you know, I, listen, I have, we, we use CAD every single day of the week. I've got a team of technical support people that that's all they do is they stare at screens and, and draw amazing things. But um, with the greatest respect to that, I, I'm, I am a very bad CAD person. I can barely, you know, navigate it. But it's because I don't need to, frankly. I can draw my idea quickly. But, um, and it has a very, it's a very, very useful tool. I take nothing away from it. But at the same time, they're designing in a vacuum on a screen. They're not looking at that object, you know, from from five thousand feet. I mean, they're they're looking at it, at, 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 you know, an inch away from the screen. They don't understand. You can you can make the objects, but that doesn't design the room or, or capture the the influences that surround that piece. You know, when we talk about design um, and we talk about designing someone's uh, kitchen, or let's, we'll talk about a kitchen because that's what we do a lot of. Um, we really start designing from the front door of the home, not from the kitchen, because that you know, in fact, from the from the, the garage. Because we look at the process of making food, uh, starting in the supermarket, you know, and 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 it's it's making this journey home, and it's got to come in through the front door, and then it's got to take this journey into the kitchen, and where's it going, and how do you get in and out, and what are the rooms around the kitchen like? And how do they influence the kitchen itself? And what are the sight lines? And this is all way before we're even thinking about where the fridge goes. You know, so you can't get that from CAD. You can draw lines all day long and it'll all fit and it'll all look perfect. But the three-dimensional picture that you're really create, painting, um, for it to be successful, you, you have to 
you have to gather so much more information than that. You are listening to Convo by Design featuring Christopher Peacock. We'll be right back. We are living in a time of incredible growth, both technologically and creatively, with respect to interior design, exterior design, and architecture. There is no question. There are companies thinking differently about the business of design and how to make products super serve those for whom they're being made. One of those companies, and one of my favorites, is Moya Living, designer and fabricators of some of the most stunningly beautiful, incredibly durable, and highly functional kitchen, bath, and outdoor kitchen cabinetry on the market today. Powder-coated steel with stunning lines, vibrant colors, to fit any design style or aesthetic. A history of designing cabinetry for the scientific community. So you know it's been tested in some of the truly the most harsh conditions available. Moya O'Neill is the CEO and founder of Moya Living. She's the inspiration behind the design. Designers, their specification process is so simple. It will make your job so much easier. Check them out online through the socials at Moya Living their website, moyaliving.com, and in the real world, their live kitchen showroom in Fountain Valley, California. It's really interesting, too, because form meets function. We didn't take... Never before has it been more evident to me as an individual, not the, the industry notwithstanding, but when we find ourselves coming home from the grocery store and not just taking food into the kitchen anymore, as was the case at the beginning of the pandemic, where... I mean, gosh, we took we took groceries into the garage and yeah. we wiped them all down. We were and wiping we left, food boxes down. Yeah, yeah. And we left them there for a couple of days or a day or two. And then the things that we had to bring inside, we 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 triaged everything. And then right. we we that's when you learn if your kitchen really works or not. Yeah. That's when yeah. you learn if your flow or your, your, your plan really yeah. works or not. And I think yeah. most people would agree their plan just did not work yeah. anymore. Yeah. yeah. And people, something people design. And, and, and this is where I, it's not, a, I don't have an issue with architects designing kitchens because, you know, I, I have the greatest respect for the architects of the world and, and, and all that they've studied and all that they've learned to, to do what they do. But they, I always feel that they're designing from the outside in and, and I think that, you know, our job um, is, is so specific. And I think we design from the inside out and it's, and it's quite a different approach. Um, and it's, you know, it's where, you know, we would never want to, we're not going to ever try and be architects in the truest sense of the word. So. It is so interesting. Uh, now, something else you said is just fascinating to me because I've said this before. You know, my I didn't start in this industry either. Um, I, I started in broadcast. I was in radio. And um, for years when I was living in Dallas, I was the music rep. And I love music. And I happened to be in North Texas at a time in the in the mid to late 90s when music coming out of the South in general, but but out of Texas in particular, was just amazing. Music coming out of Austin, out of Houston, and specifically oh, yeah. out of Dallas, yeah. Toadies yeah. and... Yep. I mean, it just some great bands. Yep. And by the way, I love that you're acknowledging certain bands that I mentioned because you're a musician yeah. and you know good music. And that's that's kind of <laughs> where I want to go. I've I've talked about this before, being being around music as much as I was and still am, um, recognizing how close the creative arts are from music. I, I interviewed John Batiste um, and his episode is on Convo by Design. I loved my conversation with him about, about music. The thing about musicians is the composition and construction mm-hmm. of music mm-hmm. is, not, is not in any way different to the construction of, of a home or, or a building of any It's all the same thing to me. It's all the same thing. Whether it's a piece of music, whether it's art on a wall, whether it's interior design, whether it's making some, it's all the same thing. It, you know, one of the things that, I, I use this analogy a lot um, when I'm working with my design team is I'll look at a, somebody will show me a, a, a drawing and, and say, you know, what do you think of this? And it'll either sort of feel right or it won't. And very often what that's about is the relationship of size of um, panelling, for example. Uh, if I'm looking at a wall of panelling or a wall of cabinetry um, and um, 
you know, there has to be this sort of, as I refer to it, this natural rhythm around the entire room. You can't look at an elevation of something in a vacuum. You've got, you've got to, you've got to read the, that whole thing together. And to me, that's like reading sheet music, or it's it's looking at the layout of a, a you know a page of print or something like. The whole thing has to be. It's not about the print; it's about how it's all laid out together. And it's the same with with I with cabinetry. At least in my mind, that's how I see it. And I the, the, there has to be a, a just a very natural, cohesive relationship between one end of the room and the other, and the size of panels and proportion and scale and all of that. And that all of these things, it's like sheet music. It's the same thing. There is, in my opinion, nothing more efficient than, than a proper sized and positioned kit. Right. <laughs> yes. So when, yeah. when you think about case goods and cabinetry, mm-hmm. Do you kind of envision it the same way as a drum kit? Because if you think about it, a kit has to be positioned a certain way for, for sure. efficiency, right? Yeah, and sure. and especially depending on the style of music that you're playing or, or what you're playing with, mm-hmm. you know, and I think about, you know, a standard, you know, the first little, little three-piece kit yeah. all the way up to a, you know, uh, Motley Crew going yeah. upside down kit yeah. where everything has, Real you know, rough. just completely yeah. Yeah. Com- Tommy Lee, completely ridiculous kit. Yeah. But it's very, to me, and I'm curious if you feel the same way, like when you look at case goods and cabinetry, do you envision this, the, the same efficiency philosophically? Completely. And um, so it's, for me, it's, it, it is like a glove, like literally, I mean, as a drama, um, you know, I, it's interesting. I um, sometimes will sit in with a band or something like that, and you're forced to basically go up and use the kit, which is there. And what no one understands is how difficult that actually is because um, a drum kit is set up for the player. And, you know, if your arms are longer or shorter, or if, you're, if you're, your legs are taller, it makes it very difficult for you to be efficient in your playing, right? It's because you're struggling against your own body size to make it work. So um, it's no different with with um, with cabinetry. Actually, it's not just a kitchen, but the, we we spend a lot of time talking to our clients about how they live um, and sort of the the family dynamic and like what happens on a Saturday morning, what happens on you know on a Wednesday evening kind of thing, because we need to understand the shape and size of that family and how they function. And until we do that, until we learn that, how can we possibly design well for them? And once, you know, once we know that, then we can start to be specific and embrace those things. And our thought process in design um, has to capture all of those moments. So by the time they put the glove on, by the time they walk into their home and they start to use it, it just works. It just everything's where it needs to be, and they're, they're not they're not having to rethink their process. Um, that's when we've done our job well. But it starts with conversation and understanding the shape and size of that family. In the same way, that, to use the analogy that you know, if you're setting, if I'm setting up my drum kit at home, it's going to be set up for me, so it's the perfect reach. So I know I can literally play my drum kit with my eyes closed and, and hit everything where it's supposed to be hit is because I just know where it is. Um, and so, so it's a very good analogy. And it's interesting too, because it's kind of like walking into somebody else's kitchen and trying to cook there and you know, yeah. where, you know, nothing about it. You don't know where the pots and pans are. You don't. Yeah. And, and I feel like, you know, the kitchen is one of those things, which is, it's a fairly intuitive space when done correctly. Yeah. You know, it is logical um, for the most part, how we do things is fairly logical. Um, But again, there's always some tweak. There's always something that somebody does. One of the things that I find is interesting, you know, for for those who who study American design and just look at what happens in in the US and don't look at someplace like Europe where, you know, in Europe, people will come in and set up a kitchen and when they sell their home or they move to a new flat or where, when they, they will take everything with them. Yeah. They, cabinetry is, cabinetry is, is, is furniture. Yeah. And it's thought right. of where I, I feel like traditionally um, as the U S housing market developed and grew and because everything is so new here, uh, relatively speaking, 
you know, cabinetry would be would be built in and it it goes with the with the problem. Yeah. But that but that, too, is starting to change. Is is that something that you think about? Is that on is that in the future of your business? Um, it's funny. I mean, I. I got to say no, I don't feel it is. And I think it's just because of the mindset. Also, in our, you know, in our business, we're sort of in the real estate business in a sense, in that so much of um, the investment of cabinetry, especially of high-end cabinetry and appliances and all of the, the fixtures and fittings that people now put into their, you know, their private areas, for example, their bathroom and dressing room suite, which is a very... Uh, an area where people spend a lot of money these days, um, but it's not necessarily visible to the, to their friends and family, right? It's it's private space, but um, that's very valuable to the homes that they're being put into. They see it as as, as financial investment as much as they do personal investment, um, and so it adds value to the home. and And so I don't think there's ever a thought, or will be a thought, that they're going to take it out and take it with them. Um, they might repeat. What they do, we've we've done that many times where we've had a client that's moved home and they're basically trying to make us do the same thing that we did in the last home, which is always impossible because homes are never the same. But um, so no, not really, not really. This they're seen as sort of value-added um, selling features to to the homes, and and especially I think with high-end branded product like ours, they see that as a a benefit to selling the property. That being said, and specifically to the kitchen and and also uh, to bathrooms, mm-hmm. what are you being asked for now as a as a cabinet manufacturer that maybe you haven't been asked for mm-hmm. in years past? Well, I think actually we touched on it at the beginning of the conversation that we're seeing a lot more thought going into these these back kitchens or secondary spaces. Um, and um, it used to be more like, uh, oh, that's for that's a catering kitchen, for example. That's where if they have a live-in housekeeper or whatever, they can kind of go back there and keep organized back there, et cetera. But it's that the purpose of that has become very much part of the family now. Um, and so these these butler's pantries are becoming back kitchens, and that's where there's another whole battery of appliances back there. Um, it becomes what they call a morning kitchen, which is where it's got the coffee maker, it's got the toaster oven, and it's got that kind of stuff, and 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 a microwave back there, and a dishwasher. So all of a sudden, you've got this kind of like mini kitchen that serves a, a moment in time. And what that does is two things: is one, obviously, it keeps the clutter and the, the less pretty stuff in the back, um, but it also frees up the front kitchen to be much more of an entertaining space. What the, the shift is, again, it's absolutely because of the pandemic, is, is that the kitchen is, as and I've said, I have said this for a long time, it's a living room that we cook in. It, it is not a kitchen. You know, it is a multifunctional space that is highly decorated, um, speaks to the rest of the home in terms of its decoration, um, has to be very practical and functional in terms of its, its ability to be kept clean, to wipe down and to and to look pristine. Um, but nowadays it, it's it's the office, it's it's the kids' homework area, it's the eating area, it's the entertaining space, it's um, it's the family gathering space. It's it just it's a multifunctional room. Only and cooking is only part of that. You know, where we, we used to think of the, the true kitchen um, as a place of food production and serving food, and not necessarily even eating in a kitchen. And eating kitchen became a thing. Um, but it's completely turned upside down now. So, so what we're seeing now is this kind of re-evaluation, rethinking of the use of the space and the, therefore the decoration of it, because it's not a secondary space. It's, it's people are spending major amounts of money on wall covering and, and, and um, lighting fixtures in a kitchen um, in the same way that they would maybe in what used to be the formal dining area or the formal living room. The kitchen's getting all of that money now, and um, it's be, it's because it is. I know we always say it's the center of the home, but it's the center of the home now for different reasons. It's amazing, um, and and that all makes sense. I, I'm curious too, if it's funny to me because I am a heavy consumer 
of industry media. I love magazines. Mm-hmm. I, I love the websites. I check them all out. I love other podcasts. I listen to other podcasts all the time. Yeah. Um, I learn new things all the time. Sure. One of the things that is kind of a pet peeve for me, and I've said it so many times, you know, hopefully I'm not still upsetting people when I say this, but ideas like, you know, here's some trends that are coming up. Here's some trends to avoid. Here's the death of the white kitchen. Well, look, if you love a white kitchen, then you're still going to want a white kitchen. And by the way, white kitchens are going to be in vogue forever because if someone likes them, yeah. Yeah. And if someone likes it, no, the materials may change. Sure. The the palette, the color palette may change. It's also a misnomer because there's no such thing as a white kitchen. There might be white cabinetry. Right. There's never a white kitchen. I mean, you know, what we're actually talking about here is uh, is is cabinetry, which is either painted or in a, in a white finish. But it's surrounded by a lot of color, um, a lot of decoration, a lot of artwork, a lot of other textures and materials. So it's not a white kitchen. It's actually white cabinetry, you know. So you, you, that's people get caught up in that. And, and I mean, look, we we started the trend, I think, many many years ago, the white kitchen. And honestly, uh, we probably still do more of that than we than anything else. But every single one looks different, and every one thing has its own character. And they and and it 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 could not be further removed from the impression that we have of like they're all the same because they're not. So, and yeah. yeah. And so that being said, um, I kind of wanted to ask you, you know, sort of in, in wrapping this up, the, the broader question, you know, trend. Yeah. Trend, trend is important. So I'm, and- I was, when you would say, I have to interrupt you. So I was smiling because we sort of have a, a, an inside joke in, in our little office marketing department where, I, you know, if I, I get asked to um, answer some questions or to, to you know, a sort of a editorial piece, um, we always look for what's the latest trends because that question's always on there. And I'm so, yeah, I'm so glad you. No, yeah, no, 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 no. It's it's the greatest thing. So, and by the way, it doesn't really matter because again, my background is in in broadcast, and mm. in broadcast, there's a lot of market research. You know, as an industry, I don't feel like we do even the necessary modicum of research, R&D in our industry is woefully inadequate. And it's because things move so quickly and and because we are so influenced by trends. I think trends are fantastic. It's when you add a why to them and things become trendy that you have a problem because because then everybody tries to replicate it and then you've got this echo chamber and it's silly. You're asking think, the wrong guy if people ask me that question. Yeah, no, totally. And what I'm, what I, what I wanted to know is how how do you innovate, and where, what is the process by which? And when I say that, just know that I'm thinking about my son plays sax. You know, he was in the marching band, he was in the jazz band. Yeah. Love jazz, as as someone that's great. Who again, going back to music, I view innovation. I view it musically, right? So when, as you innovate and you get into new product development, where do you start and and how do you market test? Well, the first thing is always being very, really, really understanding what the target is. Um, So I don't feel pressured to be innovative. Um, I think that what we do is essentially low tech, right? So, you know, in its purest form, I always say, guys, we're just making wooden boxes here. That's all we're doing, you know? So let's think about that for a second. Um, and I think that's an important thing to have in, in your mind because I do I want to make the best one I can? Do I want to provide the highest level of service? Do I want to have something which I find and, and other people find to be beautiful to look at and, and sustain? and sustainable over a long period of time absolutely so for me that's the target um a new widget doesn't really do it for me because because i don't think we're in the in the widget business a lot a a lot of um you know our the cabinet industry is really sort of split and there's a if you look at the big european companies the the pog and poles and the boffies and the you know verenas and all of these sort of mass-produced 
companies. Um, if you were to take the badge off the door, most of them look exactly the same. And there may be varying qualities in how they're made, for sure. But essentially, how they compete with each other is with gadgets. And it's with, you know, uh, a, a cabinet that sort of does a double backflip and rolls out and you can put 12 bottles in it and they all disappear. And, and that, in the moment, you think, oh, how cool is that? But the reality, the real question is, is not how cool is that? The real question is, is, is it useful? Is it practical? You know, will it break? And that's the market I'm in. I'm in the market of if somebody's going to drop the kind of money that they're going to drop to, to get a company like us to come and do their work, I assume, and in fact, I feel responsible that amortized over the 20, 25 years that that thing can last, um, and more actually, but but if that's the you know the kind of the visible lifespan of what we may do, um, then it needs to it's got to last that amount of time. It's got it's got to stand the test of time, and be used every day and not break. And so for me, innovation is about that. I'm certainly all into um, trying to find better materials, better more efficient ways to manufacture things. Um, you know, we're we're actually about to double the size of our manufacturing facility and um the the biggest conversation in that is is how do we do that sustainably and how do we embrace you know uh, energy and all of these other things and solar energy and and sort of impact so so i'm into that stuff for sure but um i don't feel the pressure to come up with a, a new widget i feel the pressure to come up with something which i think is beautiful but won't break um so that's kind of my approach to it and I, I, that's just me I, I love that. And that makes perfect sense. And one of the things I would love to do is as you do expand, I would love the opportunity to to circle back with you. Sure. Um, I, I love that. And I love this. Christopher, thank you so much for taking the time today. This was fun. I, I, I think we both know you and I could talk for hours, you know, yeah, <laughs> we totally. should probably should just talk offline. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's always a pleasure, Josh. Every time I see you, it's great. And, and um, yeah, you're smart. Your podcasts are fantastic. Um, I just listened to the Bunny Williams one. Uh, I mean, they're great. So um, so keep doing what you're doing. And, and, and thank you so much for letting me do this with you. Christopher, you're the best. Thank you. Okay, take care. See you soon somewhere, right? Design Hardware's newly remodeled showroom is where you will find a gallery-style space with a thoughtful display of products purposefully positioned to allow unbridled exploration and discovery. High-end faucets, luxury tile, Natural stone, wood floors, and bespoke hardware selections are presented in a holistic manner, strategically arranged to stimulate creativity and transition your vision from the conceptual stage to a fully realized space. Conveniently located, free parking available, stop by to find your inspiration, collect samples, get expert advice, and tackle everything on your shopping list all in one place. Visit them online at designhardware.com or in the real world, 6053 West 3rd Street in Los Angeles. Thank you, Christopher, for taking the time to share your story. Thank you, Convo by Design partners and sponsors, Thermosol, Moya Living, and Design Hardware for your continued support. And thank you for taking the time every week to share some time together and hear the stories behind Sublime Design. Until next week, remember why you do what you do and for whom you do it. Be well, and take today first. Mm-hmm.